Everybody, we are back, wrapped in podcast episode 18. We're going to talk about part 18 of Twin Peaks The Return. Before we start, though, we want to dedicate this episode of the podcast uh, in remembrance of Harry Dean Stanton, who passed away today. Uh, a, a great actor, a great man, uh, indispensable to, I think, the ultimate vision of Twin Peaks that we saw in Firewalk with me and in in the return, he lived a great life, and uh, we are thankful that he was part of the show and we got to experience him. Uh, I'm Jr. Uh, Kyle, are you with us? Uh, I am, and in honor of the late Harry Dean Stanton, tomorrow morning I'm going to have an extra helping of Good Morning America. Will it be the 24 hour blend? Oh, absolutely. Good. And uh, <clears throat> I, I hope you get past the sting. Uh, <laughs> Ken, are you are you with us? I am here. I drove all the way here from Odessa, Texas, in silence. And uh, boy, it it turns out that it's a long ways away. It's a it's a ways away. Did you get any gas on the trip? There was a Valero with very reasonable prices, like uh, 2010 prices. I thought that's great. That's great. <laughs> And uh, and Jeff, are you with us? I'm here, but I don't know what year it is. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, so, part 18, this is the last episode of Twin Peaks, The Return, the last part, properly. Uh, we start with the Rancho Rosa logo, 
uh, where we've got black and white all over. We've got the circle seems to be uh, an, an image of uh, the mushroom cloud surrounding the Trinity test to some extent. And, you know, we've got a series of, of black flashes. Now, I'm going to introduce a notion that we talked about or I talked about in 17 uh, about ways in which I think that part 17 and 18 are synced together. Uh, the first place you see that if you watch 17 and 18 simultaneously, which if you're a crazy person, you might do. Uh, it is strongly borne out here that you have a direct uh, negative image of the Rancho Rosa where the Rancho Rosa in 18 circle flashes black. We see white uh, in 17. We'll uh, just table that for the moment and come back to it. The first scene of this episode is Mr. C, who really kind of looks like a statue. I mean, he's totally immobile and he's on fire and we see black smoke uh, rising up from him. And then we see, presumably also in the red room, a chair, a chair that it looks kind of like the same chair that, that Mr. C was just on fire in. Mike takes a, a metallic ball that's brass or gold and a lock of Dale Cooper's hair. This is the seed that presumably Mike showed Cooper when he was in the hospital in Las Vegas. And this is the hair that, that Cooper handed to Mike. Uh, while he was in the hospital in Las Vegas in part 16, there's this, these three buzz, these three buzz sounds where Mike squeezes the ball and kind of taps the hair. Uh, and after those taps and Mike saying electricity, the ball jumps around and absorbs the hair, grows in size, floats in the air. And now we've got a Dale Cooper Tulpa. Um, I, I want to note that he's not wearing a pin on his lapel because that's something I'm also trying to track. And he seems like the good coop for the most part. He's, 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 uh, almost jovial in his expression. He says, where am I? But not in this, not an expression of fear or, or a little bit of confusion, but he seems almost happy to be there. There's almost like a smile on his face. Uh, we see the swooping Chevron four and the red curtains, and we transition to the Jones residence in Las Vegas, where the doorbell rings. Jenny E. answers it. She's so happy to see Cooper, uh, as does Sonny Jim. Sonny Jim says, Dad, Dad, Dad. And Cooper, or the Tulpa, whoever he is, smiles and says, Home. And on the one hand, he says, Home, in the same way that Dougie would say, Home. But at the same time, he's also answering the question, that was just posed in the red room. Where am I? Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think Kyle, you had a few things you wanted to say about this that are worth talking about. Well, you'd mentioned about the chair. It's it's difficult to tell whether uh, whether the new Dougie Tulpa is created in the same chair in which we just saw Doppel Cooper burning. Uh, and if it was, then I think that's cause for concern because you've got uh, the ashes from which the Tulpa is rising literally are Mr. C's, but it may provide some grist for uh, another alternate uh, explanation here. Because if the new Tulpa was created out of the original Dougie seed, a lock of 
of the Good Dale's hair and Doppelcooper's cremains, the resulting tulpa might combine all three of their personalities. And given how the Richard Cooper that we see after he and Diane pass the 430-mile mark exhibits personality traits from each of the three Coopers, it's at least possible, I'm not saying I buy this, but it's at least possible that the Cooper tulpa we see Mike make is the Richard Cooper who emerges from the Red Room to meet Diane in Glastonbury Grove, and the real original recipe Agent Cooper is the one who returns to Lancelot Court to live the life he has earned with Janie E. and Sonny Jim. I'm not advocating for that theory, but it's not implausible. Yeah, and I have a couple of things to say about the Red Room here that I just realized. Uh, did, did you want to chime in on Kyle's theory, Jeff? Uh, I didn't. No, Jared, did you? Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's a, a an interesting and and somewhat compelling idea. I mean, the real problem is is putting our finger on who is the real coop and at what point in time are we talking about, right? Because this this coop that shows up at Janie E's door does not seem pained or wizened by experience. Uh, he's simply just happy and open to the love that he has for his family, which is great, but. You know, if, if if we did see Coop do any of the things that uh, at least led him to the place that he went after he goes through the boiler room in the Great Northern, you know, I just I just don't know. I don't I don't I don't know. So yeah, that that's that. I think there, it's an unresolvable question, but I think it's a it's sure. it's sound. We kind of dropped our uh, metaphor of returning Robins last episode, or the last two episodes is what I think we we're trying to sort through what happened in 17. Uh, but this, I would say, hey, yeah, I thought this was a good Tulpa. I thought Janie, Sonny Jim, and this good Cooper, Dougie Tulpa were going to live happily ever after on, on Lancelot Court. And this is kind of, I guess, one of the, um, you know, seems like last moments of fan service <laughs> or a happy ending, yeah. I guess, a, a conventional happy ending uh, of sorts that we're going to get in this episode. So, yeah. Yeah, and just to support that and the idea that everything sort of loops back around to the sheriff station and that the actual ending is the victory over evil in the sheriff station, followed by the incineration of the bad Cooper, the doppelganger coop that we get being incinerated at the beginning of this episode. I've just pieced together that when Philip slash Mike squeezes the ball and it makes the static, he says electricity or sort of sings it, and he's, and it makes the static slash buzz, buzzing noises, he squeezes it short, 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 long. Uh, that's three dots in a dash. Three dots in a dash is V in Morse code, which is victory. It's also the uh, name of a very good tiki drink and a very good tiki bar in Chicago, uh, which is how I know the phrase. But it just it just came to me. Three dots in a dash, V, victory. So it's meant to be victory over evil at that point, I think. And a really Not, awesome... And I, I love that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. Sorry about that. I was just going to say it was a good miniseries in the 80s featuring invading reptilian aliens. So, oh, yeah. my exactly. favorite. My exactly. favorite. Probably... <laughs> Probably Tamara Preston's, uh, you know, ancestral race. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I really like that. And, you know, I would have been skeptical uh, at the notion that anything good could come from a tulpa uh, back in ep- episode 16, uh, that tulpas are inherently unstable and unreliable and will, you know, as we saw with Diane's tulpa and the Dougie tulpa sending a tulpa to Jenny's house, you know, may not be that great. 
But if we're talking about uh, the tulpa that we see arrive at the house, there really doesn't seem any reason to suggest that. And then if it turns out that the Cooper that was sent to Odessa uh, was a tulpa, well, that's totally consistent because he is fairly erratic and confused and you know problematic. Right. Yeah, and, and Ken, I, I'm glad you caught that because I love that because it ties back into the secret history because when you think about the V for victory, um, you, you think of two politicians, one of them British in Winston Churchill and the American politician associated with it, of course, is Richard Nixon, who famously flashed the V for victory sign as he was boarding the helicopter to leave the White House uh, after, we know from the secret history, setting up what became uh, the Blue Rose Task Force. But, but Jeff, I have to agree with you. Uh, um, from this point forward, uh, the only Robins in Part 18 uh, are in the form of Jason Todd being beaten to death by the Joker with a crowbar. Oof. That that really makes me want to change my Facebook avatar now. <laughs> that's, that's grim. <laughs> Sorry, Ken. <laughs> so we see in color the same scene that we saw at the end of 17, uh, Cooper leading Laura Palmer through the woods, uh, it presumably in... February 23rd, 1989. Uh, he's leading her by the hand, but then we hear the clicking insectoid sound from the gramophone from episode one. And then we see Coop look back and Laura is gone. Uh, we hear the sound of, of the swooshing or swoosh, you know, the swoosh sound. And then Laura screams, uh, and then just silence. Uh, the sounds really seem to match up to. The same scene that we saw part 17 and the same scene that we see when Lord disappears and is sucked away from the lodge in episode one. And again, later on in episode 18, I want to introduce the notion that all of the times that we see Laura scream and be whooshed away are happening simultaneously. Mm. Uh, this, that, that it's the, the, the action is, is exactly the same. The, the sound is the same of the scream, the sound of the whooshing, the action of the flying away is the same. And, you know, it, since time uh, does not work in the Black Lodge the way it does for the rest of the world, uh, I, I really do wonder if when we see these things happening in the show and they appear to be happening in a semi-linear fashion, that they are not, that they're all happening at the same time. That Laura being whooshed out of Twin Peaks is happening at literally at the same time that she's uh, screaming and being whooshed out of the Red Room on two, supposedly two different occasions, but really, I think, one occasion entirely. Well, it does. I'll buy that. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. It does play into sort of the branching idea of the time stream or alternate dimensions that we talked about a little bit in episode 17 when Kyle and I in particular were bitching about time stream stories where you can go back and change the past. If the timeline is sort of diverging at the point where she screams, you could see it creating a reality where she doesn't die, which we see a glimpse of when Pete Martell goes fishing and doesn't find the body at the same time that it creates a reality where uh, she's there's actually Carrie Page and there was never a Laura Palmer at the same time that it creates a reality where she does go to the boxcar with with leo and uh, and gets killed and all of that that's there's a certain uh resonance there that i like i like that theory too jr all right so we jump from here to the red room uh where cooper's sitting in a chair next to mike who asked him is it future or is it past there this is obviously the same thing happened in episode one or part one of twin peaks the return uh, mike disappears 
the camera pans to the empty chair next to Mike. Then we see Mike at the other end of the red room in the corner, gesturing to Cooper to go through the red curtains. Ken, you noted that Cooper looks really trepidatious, but takes a big brief, kind of steals himself, gets up and walks briskly to the corner. Uh, when he gets there, or rather the next thing we see is the arm, uh, the, the, not the evolution of the arm, but the arm as the arm tree brain thing says, crackling with electricity. I am the arm and I sound like this, which is the sound <clears throat> then it says, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane? Uh, and then you see Cooper listening impassively. Then the arm says, is it? And, you know, I think there, Ken, you thought it might be that the rest of the statement is broken off. I heard it and read the subtitles as a question. Just, you know, is it the little girl who lived down the lane? Is it? Yeah, that's how I took it, too. I, I thought he was posing the question to Cooper. You know, this is what I'm telling you, but is that true? Right. And Jeff, you wanted to talk about the little girl who lived down the lane. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, mentioned this. It's a film and a, a book. Uh, yeah, it's. I mentioned it. I think in episode. I think it was thirteen, and it did come up in one of Audrey's conversations with with Charlie. And uh, in that context, um, yeah, it's it's a a film starring Jodie Foster from nineteen seventy six called The Little Girl Who Lives Down the Lane, based on a novel of the same name. And it's you know to briefly recap it, Foster's character is named Wren. She's thirteen years old. She lives alone in this giant mansion in a New England town. And her father, who's a poet, uh, has, I believe, committed suicide. Uh, and the father gave Rin explicit instructions on how to live alone and kind of how to act, uh, you know, after he had died as if her father was away indefinitely so that her mother couldn't get custody of her. And then um, there's Martin Sheen plays this kind of creepy pedophile character who's trying to, um, you know, uh, I, I guess, you know, figure out what's, what's up with, with Ren. Uh, and there's her next door neighbors, a magician. There's all sorts of strange, uh, you know, things about the film, but resonances I saw with Twin Peaks, uh, included this sense of child abuse in a town where everyone seems to know about it and ignore it or cover it up again, magic. Uh, there's poison that seemed to resonate with Twin Peaks to return and this kind of general sense of the decay and darkness underneath this kind of bucolic American small town facade. Uh, when Audrey mentioned it, uh, and I, the other reason I thought it was worth talking about, this seems like one of the only you know connections I can think of to Audrey's storyline uh, in 17 or 18. Um, and and when Audrey used it, it seemed to kind of indicate her sense of entrapment in you know uh, this mysterious you know kind of old fashioned house and her sense of suspended adolescence. But here, when the arm says it, it seemed to me to take on sort of a different, more generalized meaning. Um, I wondered if uh, this story could be the story of Laura and her neglect by the Twin Peaks community. Even more general, uh, that kind of fable-like story we saw in episode eight of the Frogbug Girl, uh, who was kind of corrupted by the evil that had been released into the world by the atomic bomb explosion, the woodsman's invasion of the town and its airwaves through the radio station. Uh, yeah, and so um, I, I wondered about you know, this, this kind of sense of, I guess, one story among many, you know, like, is this a story? Little girl lives down the lane. And if you guys read it as, is it either, if that's broken off or it's just kind of like a, a reiterating question, either way, it seems to me to indicate 
a number of stories, uh, branching stories, different types of narratives. Uh, and the one of the little girl who lived down the lane, I guess, being an important one, but maybe one among many. And it seems to be interrogating, I guess, the nature of that story uh, on, on some level, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I think that's about all I had to say about it. But I thought it was worth mentioning again. No, that's great. Okay, so we go back to the Red Room. We cut to Laura whispering in Cooper's ear. Uh, the same scene seemingly from episode one or part one of the return. Uh, Cooper looks uh, confused or alarmed and says either uh-huh or huh. He looks up at her and then we see the sort of the same series of noises, uh, the screaming, the whooshing, and she flies away. She's sucked up into the air. Coop looks to his right. Uh, and then we cut to Cooper walking across an another red room where Leland Palmer is sitting between two lamps. Leland tells Cooper to find Laura. He looks distraught. Cooper listens and then walks back the way he came. And, you know, we were seeing the same footage from part one of the return playing here at the end. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the whole notion of the return is some sort of loop uh, repeating on itself. And I think that's manifest in the fact that these scenes are repeating here uh, in the final uh, part. Okay. So after he sees Leland, he goes down the hallway of the, the red room and he holds out his hand and waves his hand in, in a certain motion that causes the curtains on his right to kind of rustle and then blow open for him to walk through. And there's, you know, there's some suggestion here that Coop at this point in time has certain magical Black Lodge abilities that allows him to do this. But at the same time, he's walking in a kind of awkward, almost Dougie-like fashion, uh, despite the fact that he's, you know, in the way that he's uh, a savant. He's got some special ability that he can manifest, but he's walking like, you know, somebody who's disabled. Yeah. And that sense of like, you know, kind of walking like that, I, you, you're right with his right hand. It seemed like Dougie had done that a couple of times. And it also in the very, you know, final scene of this episode, it seemed to me like Cooper was making a similar motion, I believe with his, his right hand as well. So, yeah, but it did seem like, you know, compared to the other times he made his way out of the lodge, this seemed more purposeful uh, and intentful. And he, he seemed to know what he was doing. Right. And so he comes out in Glastonbury Grove uh, of course, this is where Bad Coop emerged, where Mr. C emerged at the end of the finale of uh, or season two of Twin Peaks, where the sc the scorched engine oil is uh, sitting in a pool that that causes it to act as a portal. Uh, it's also where we saw Hawk approach, but not go in. And gosh, what was that? Like one of the first four episodes, in the context of him having a conversation on the phone with the log lady. Uh, but that, you know, we never, we never got to see that what appeared to be a flash forward uh, in context. Uh, anyway, he comes out of the curtains and he sees Diane uh, with red hair dressed in a black sweater. He comes up to her and Diane says, is it you? Is it really you? And Cooper replies, yes, it's really me, Diane. She touches his face and he asks, he asks her, is it really you? And she says, yeah. And, you know, this reunion of sorts is markedly different from the reunion of Dale and Diane in part 17. Do you all agree? I, I talked about this already, but 
Um, in part 17, when Dale and Diana are reunited, there's real joy, a real um, sense of fulfillment in their reunion, whereas this reunion is really quite tentative. Yeah. Coop does not seem to be that certain of who he is. Diane does not seem to be that certain of who she is or who, who Coop is in this scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It did seem more hesitant. So, yeah. And Kyle, is this where you're going to talk about your thoughts on the nature of Topas and Topas aware and Topa awareness? Yeah, just, just briefly, I man, I kind of touched upon it uh, earlier, but you know, we, we know that uh, gender has always played an important role in Twin Peaks in, in any incarnation and nowhere more so than in Twin Peaks, the return. And we've particularly seen it, you know, with Sarah Palmer's attack on the trucker, Ruby being removed from the booth, you know, later in this episode, Richard Cooper and the actions against the Cowboys in the Odessa diner. Uh, and, and we seem to get an indication uh, on the basis of admittedly a small sample size, but there seems to be some indication that female tulpas have a little bit more awareness of their nature than male tulpas do. We know that when Lois Duffy's tulpa was shot, her dying words to Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries acknowledged her own artificiality. That's the whole meaning behind being a blue rose. When Diane Evans's tulpa is pulled into the red room and Mike tells her she was manufactured, her response is, yeah, no duh. I mean, she, she clearly knows it. But when we see the original Dougie Jones pulled into the red room, uh, he's clearly baffled by it. He he doesn't understand what's going on at all. And JR, as you mentioned, when the new Dougie Tulpa was manufactured earlier in this episode, um, although he's chipper, he's he's equally oblivious. And so there's some indication that a female Tulpa knows what she is. A male Tulpa might not. And so I, I think that puts an interesting uh, coloration on this scene because both Cooper and Diane ask each other, is it really you? I think we can safely assume that when Diane answers, whether she's telling the truth or lying, she at least knows whether she's telling the truth or lying. Cooper, when he answers the question, might be sincere, but he might also be mistaken. And and it's just interesting to me as we're going forward that we have to consider the possibility that a lot of these people are tulpas. I mean, we later see one Diane in the car and another Diane outside in the motel, maybe one of them is a tulpa and one of them is the real Diane, but we don't really have any way of knowing which. And although Diane probably knows, Dale might not. Right. And as they, they cut, we cut then from this scene that this reunion scene in Glastonbury Grove to daytime Cooper and Diane are in some, 50s or 60s car with Cooper's driving and uh, Diane says to him, are you sure you want to do this? He looks at her. Diane says, you don't know what it's going to be like once we and Cooper says, I know that we're at the point now. I can feel it. So Cooper looks at the uh, odometer. He says it's almost 430 miles. He pulls over, stops the car, and says exactly 430 miles. Here, I'm going to drop in with my 17 synchronization. Uh, As Diane and Cooper are approaching the portal at exactly 430 miles, Mr. C is approaching the portal that is 253 yards from Jackrabbit's Palace in Part 17. Diane says, just think about it, Cooper. He 
Coop doesn't reply. He gets out of the car and he walks forward and he looks at the big power lines and then he leans back, looks up at the sky next to the power lines with his, with his arms almost held back in the air. And at the exact same point that Cooper is doing this in part 18, in part 17, we see Mr. C look up at the vortex on top at the portal by Jack Rabbit's palace to the white lodge, make the exact same physical motion of bending back, looking up into the sky, putting his arms back. And then he disappears. These two views of Cooper and Mr. C looking up at the sky happen at exactly the same time. You need some sort of like sync sound effect. You drop in when you talk about these things, JR, all of the colors. I, I, so, I, I know. I, I don't know, know what wish, it's going to be, but it's I, I some little like sting or tag. You need to like throw in some audio thing. So yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, I'll, have to hunt around for that so anyway coop looks at his watch and he looks around he gets back in the car diane looks nervous and unsure we've got really powerful uh electrical crackling in the air coop says this is the place all right he says to diane kiss me and they seem yeah they, they do seem to want to kiss each other he says once we cross it could all be different they embrace and they kiss diane says let's go Cooper starts the car. They drive. We see the power lines. We see the crackling electricity, or at least we hear it. Uh, Cooper is on the side of the road, uh, not on the main street, and he's driving slowly. Then there's a flash of light, and we move to the next scene. Before we go to wherever it is that we are at night after this scene, uh, what do you guys have to say about this part of Part 18? I guess I was just going to say, you know, we talked in the last uh, episode about that incredible kind of jump cut uh, between, you know, everyone kind of in, uh, you know, the office at the sheriff's station uh, or wherever, you know, and, and then all of a sudden we cut to Diane, Coop and Gordon in the basement of either the real or the metaphysical Great Northern. And, you know, talking about what happened in that sort of giant gap. And I think there's not quite as severe a gap, but still, uh, to use, I think your term, JR, a severely alighted passage here. We don't know what happened between when they exited Glastonbury Grove and how they got to this point. And I think that's just a really severe, you know, kind of uh, jump cut. There's a lot in between there. Um, and then I, I guess just in this scene, um, the sense I kind of got is that Cooper and Diane are sort of aware of what's going to happen to them once they go through this portal, you know, their identities are going to change. They're not going to feel the same way about each other. Um, they are going to, I guess, you know, any sense of personal happiness perhaps that they might have together as a couple is going to be kind of wrenched away from them in service of some other cause or purpose. Uh, and then, um, you know, our, one of our listeners, Kyle commented about, uh, you know, Cooper, uh, a reading of this episode is, you know, kind of Cooper making a great kind of sacrifice in what he's about to do, you know, in the rest of the episode and kind of entering into this other timeline, pocket universe, dream world dimension, whatever you want to say. Um, but I, I, you know, Kyle said that about Cooper, you know, being this kind of sacrificial hero in a way. And that was kind of in keeping with my sort of impressions about how he acted in this scene. Uh, and I kind of think they take this moment, to kiss each other here because they know there might not be ever able to do so quite and be, be together in quite the same way again. So yeah, I think those were, those were my thoughts on the scene. 
Yeah, and certainly it's the show deciding not to provide a happy ending via love story, deciding not to be a love story fundamentally between Coop and Diane after giving us what that happy ending might look like in episode 17. So the way we were talking about this moment being slightly different, they, I, there still seems to be a lot of warmth and affection between them when they say, is it you? Is it really you here? But I, I'm with everybody else that it was much more meaningful seeming and more romantic in 17. So if we believe that the whole show sort of ends its chronology there with a happy ending, then that's a romance that works. If we don't, then this is the show choosing to go a different direction. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And, and for me, the thing that I noted about this uh, particular scene uh, is that, you know, as, as he said in part 17, and, and uh, frankly, uh, as I needed to have Jeff explain to me, uh, the numerology of 253 is that it adds up to the number of completion. And here we get the revelation, finally, of the significance of the numbers 430, and, and that presents an interesting parallel, because if we really are talking about alternate timelines, alternate universes, quantum mechanics, and all that, the alternate universe is the negative duplicate of our own, right? It's the one where Spock has the goatee and and the you know uh, and and the Enterprise is evil and all that good stuff. And so the numerology ought to identify the difference, both literal and mathematical. And so if we take the two five three in this universe and add it, two plus five plus three equals ten, and then you add the one plus the zero, and it comes out as one. You ought to subtract it on the other side. So four minus three minus zero still comes out to one. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The addition of the digits in one reality matches exactly the deduction, both as an arithmetic operation and as a sleuthing solution of the digits from the other. And they both ultimately equal one. And so we ask, what, what is the difference there? What was subtracted from one reality to create the other? And the answer, of course, is Laura Palmer. Uh, thus confirming mathematically what the log lady has already told us, that Laura is the one, unless, of course, we lend additional credence to Diane's statement in Part 17 that Cooper is the one and only. Uh, and, Jr., you, you said something there when you were talking about the juxtaposition between 17 and 18, and the way you described, and, and you, you almost used the phrase with both Coopers, I feel like I know her, but sometimes my arms bend back and and you describe both of them as their arms bending back. And that just, I had not noticed that until you described it, but that's just, that's just a really cool callback that maybe I'm sticking in there that isn't really there, but if so, it's really neat. Yeah. And my, t- my take on all this is sort of the opposite of, of Kyle's in that I think that it's trying to push us, the show's trying to push us away from thinking of everything as a mirror image of something else. And I'm sure people are um, tired of Kyle and I agreeing on things. So I think it's important that I disagree with him on, on at least one point. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that, you know, if we have an infinite number of possibilities and an infinite number of branching universes, then it isn't as simple as a fundamental battle between good and evil. In fact, it might be Cooper's fundamental mistake, that he treats everything as this dualist Manichaean battle between good and evil. And what we have with the numerology, I got very into the numerology in some of these places as well, thanks to uh, you all and your discussions of it in part 17. I I think it just matters that the tens and sevens are everywhere. So we're going to get a lot of tens, a lot of the number of completion, and a lot of lucky seven insurance. Four plus three plus zero is seven. So I think the numerology works whether you add or, or subtract, but I definitely think that we're supposed to see every time 
somebody is doubled, just as Kyle has pointed out wonderfully throughout the season, every time somebody is doubled, then they are ultimately tripled or quadrupled as well. And every time some idea is doubled, it, it shows up then in threes or maybe even in fours. And uh, I think it's important that we had Doppel Cooper back at the beginning of this so we could remember him along with Dougie and the good Tulpa that replaces Dougie and this Cooper, plus maybe Richard, three, maybe four Coopers. And I think it's important that we're going to get another Tulpa um, of Linda. We're gonna, we have the Linda um, person who's with Cooper, and then we have whatever the other version of her is that appears outside the motel, right? Um, so I, I, I think all of that is leading away from the mirror image dualist twos interpretation and towards threes, fours, and on into infinity. Well, speaking of that, Diane and Cooper, or whoever they are, are driving at night. You know, we've flashed to uh, a nighttime driving scene. Uh, Ken, you noted that they they drive for one minute to f- one minute fifteen seconds in the dark. Uh, has a very lost highway or Mister C driving at night kind of feel. When they first jump into this new dimension, uh, they're going really fast, uh, which reminded me of, of course, of Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, and then they slow down a little bit. Wait, but just to and be clear, though, fif- one minute, 15 seconds, one plus one plus five, seven. It's a seven. Yeah, no. Okay. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and Ken, you've got the, the numerology frog bug has crawled into your throat. I like it. So I'm, right. <laughs> I'm just angling for my own iced tea cue that says numbers. <laughs> right. Right. And so, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll find you like a Sesame Street jingle or something. Schoolhouse um, Rock or something. Yeah. So they arrive at the the Pear Blossom Hotel, or I'm sorry, Motel. Uh, I think Ken, you and 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 Kyle had some thoughts on on that name. Yeah, I, I heard Pear Blossom, and you know, I think Pear, and I think of it as the homophone for you know P E A R. I think of it as the homophone for P A I R, suggesting duality, which we see some of with the two Dianes. And then I hear Blossom, and I, I think of that as in flower, as in blue rose, implying artificiality. I know. Typically, Ken views it differently, but that was what I got from the name of the motel. Yeah, no, I I got all those connotations as well, but I think this plays into my idea that we're being pushed to reject the duality or the dual nature of some of the forces and and things we've seen previously in the series. So everything sort of goes wrong, starts to go pear-shaped, if you like, at the Pear Blossom Motel, named after pears, twins, the positive or negative pole, positive and negative poles of electrical batteries, right? I mean, fundamentally, electricity is, uh, has positive and negative poles, right? Um, And uh, Blossom, as in the birth of something like Bob being spewed like Athena from the head of the experiment uh, or the head of Zhao Day in, in episode eight, or like the blossoming of all these doomed youths that we've seen over the course of the series. Your Laura Palmer, Becky, Audrey Horn, all these people who are just, you know, in, in the full flower of youth being cut down or sent to, you know, endless recursions, maybe in Laura's case, a uh, an endless coma, some sort of misery with uh, Jeff's friend Charlie in Audrey's case. And just, I think, I still think being gunned down by a very high abusive husband in Becky's case. See, Ken, that was a great response, but it would have been even better if you had done like Dan Aykroyd in Weekend Update and began by saying, Kyle, you Manichaean slut. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I'm I'm not trying to make him angry. (laughs) I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, just trying to respectfully disagree with my colleague. <laughs> Plus, he'd call me something even uh, worse with gnostic in it. You, you watch. 
Gnostic. Is that not how you pronounce that? Uh, Gnostic. I, I've always Gnosticism. heard Gnostic, but it could be. It could be. You put an A in front of it, and it becomes agnostic. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Uh, well, right. Okay. So Cooper parks the car. He gets out. He goes into – Diane stays in the car. He goes into the hotel, the motel office to get a room. And then we see Diane look out and she sees uh, another Diane uh, seemingly wearing the same clothes with the same wig uh, out in front of the hotel or the motel. Diane sees the double but doesn't have seem to – you know act or be surprised but her eyes seem to fall on the the double double or the tulpa or whatever's there cooper leaves the office and goes and stands in front of room seven he looks in at diane at, and diane kind of has this like well i guess i'm gonna get out now look on her face but she kind of has to decide what she's gonna do i thought and ultimately gets out of the car and they go into room seven together diane as they come into the room turns on the overhead light It's pretty bright. Uh, And Cooper, who's now standing next to the bed, tells her to turn off the light. She does. And then she asks him, what do we do now? Okay. And at this point, uh, what Cooper says, you come over here to me, which is that that's like the first line here where where we can tell that Cooper is creepy, right? There's no affection in his voice. It's it's almost this mechanical thing. Uh, about this is the next thing that they're going to do. I don't know what you mean. Um, I, be- I begin all my sexual encounters with that exact same phrase and that tone. Is that not, right, is that right. not how other people are doing it? Right. No, I'm sorry. I, got, uh, I forgot about your Gorian household rules, uh, Ken. Uh, so um, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but we don't expect that of Cooper. I, I, I didn't expect that of Cooper. But I, I am going to take another synchronization aside. This may not seem that significant, but I saw over and over again, watching 17 and 18 at the same time, that you'd have a, a series of, of dialogue, lines between two characters in the two episodes, filled with silence. And those silent pauses between lines would be filled absolutely perfectly with lines in the other episode. Like, for example, here, at the same time that this scene is happening in part 18 and 17, Andy is offering Mr. C a cup of coffee. And <clears throat> so the way that the, the, that the progression goes is Andy in 17, would you like a cup of coffee? And then in 18, Diane says, what do you do now? And then in 17, Mr. C says, no, thanks. I'm all right. You know, a key indication that Mr. C is not a good coop, right? That there's a pause and that pause is filled in 18 by you come over here to me. So I don't know if it's that significant, but the way that it synchronizes and the way that no, thanks. I'm all right to coffee and you come over here to me, which is what Cooper says here, they both signal that this is not the right Cooper. Of course, we already know that with Mr. C, but not everybody in the sheriff's station knows that at the time. So, so JR, are you saying that there are, in fact, no scenes of silence staring in Twin Peaks The Return? It's just a matter of syncing up the episodes that's to correct. fill those silences. That's, I'll that's be correct. damned. That's, okay. that's correct. I'm, I, I'm now totally sold on this theory. We just have to figure out what to watch in was it episodes one and two that had all the silent staring? Which episodes we watch to fill those those uh, moments of silent staring? And, and 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 I need to know the one that lines up with the sweeping in the roadhouse because that will explain everything. It will. It definitely will. 
Right, right, right. Leading on to this, in, in 18, you see uh, Coop say Diane. And then in 17, you see Sheriff Truman say Cooper. Cooper. And then Mr. C says, in the flesh, you know, which is – and then as he says flesh in 17, Coop and Diane start kissing in 18. Engaging in fleshly pursuit, they kiss in the dark. Uh, the crickets uh, we hear outside, and then my prayer kicks in loud, which is I think when Ken and I uh, turned to each other as we watched this and said, "Oh shit!" Yeah. Uh, because nothing good, <laughs> nothing good right. is going to happen uh, when this song is playing. Of course, this is the song that was on the radio station in New Mexico as the woodsman. Uh, was collapsing people's skulls with his hand and doing his poetry slam on the radio. And I would not good. I would not good at all. Death poetry slam, if you like. Yeah. I just like to remind all our listeners that one of the members of the group, the platters who sing my prayer is called David Lutch. That's right. <laughs> who says the show isn't meta? That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, we're about to get to plenty of meta stuff uh, later on, but Andy says, very important, very important. And this is his signal to uh, Lucy to shoot Mr. C at exactly the moment that my prayer kicks in. I mean, this is, guys, here's where I'm getting at. In 17, we see a plan for come to fruition to trap Mr. C, put him in the wrong place, put him into the sheriff's station so that Freddie with his green glove can kill him. And I think that what we have here in this hotel motel room is another plan. Uh, this awkward sex scene that we're about to see between Cooper and Diane, uh, you know, there's some suggestion that this is part of a plan by the White Lodge, seemingly, to do something. Uh, I think it's to get Judy, to summon Judy, who we know is attracted by sexual Congress. In as much as we saw the experiment model drop into the glass box, uh, that sex scene between um, Sam and whatever her poor name is Tracy, uh, Tracy, God, I can't remember her name. It's awful. Uh, <laughs> Sam and Tracy, it, they they summoned inadvertently by starting to have sex, uh, Judy, um, and <clears throat> now it looks like Diane and Cooper are having sex for a purpose. I think this is manifest by the fact that Coop is not talking about this in terms of a romantic expression of love. It's come over here to me, Diane, they kiss and then they have sex in a way in which Mr. or Mr. C Cooper is totally passive. He sits there. He does not, he's without affect. He's without expression. Diane is trying to make the best of it, I think. But we think that this is sex for a purpose. And uh, we all laid a bet on who's the first person that was going to talk about thelemic sex magic. Everyone agreed that it was probably going to be me. I, I don't know that that is at all to my credit. But, <clears throat> you know, going back to the secret history and the sort of notion of using sex as a sort of magic spell, uh, it, it is part of the thelemic set of beliefs, Thelema being the uh, quasi-religion founded by Aleister Crowley. It's based on the notion of making one's will manifest in the world through uh, willpower and magic itself. And there's a body of belief within 
Crowleyism or the OTO or whatever you want to call it that that sex with a certain purpose that sexual congress has the capacity to open up a portal this is specifically referenced and talked about in the secret history where Jack Parsons is trying to do that uh to get to summon Babylon the mother of all abominations and you know i think that what's going on here in this hotel room this awkward and inexplicable sex scene that this is part of a plan it's part of a purpose to get Judy which at the beginning of 17 we found out has been the plan of Briggs and Cooper uh, and Cole from the beginning and i think it's also the plan of the white lodge as well so anyway that's my little kind of aside aside big picture you know he he as they progress to having more and more sex Diane starts to cover his face starts covering his face more and more and she covers up his face entirely at the precise point in time in 17 that Mr. C is shot by Lucy. So, yeah, I'm kind of lost. Do you guys want to talk about this uh, sex stuff? Yeah, I have a couple of things on the sex scene, um, if, if I can. Sure, go ahead. So, you know, the music is is obviously very creepy, as as you pointed out, and very, very intentional. Obviously, we heard it during the, the Poetry Slam, as we talked about. I think it's another example of Lynch putting something into the canon of songs that I didn't really know at all before, or was had some passing familiarity with that will now be forever associated in my head with stuff that's really, really creepy, right? Whether it's In Dreams, the, the Roy Orbison version, or Rammstein, or, or this Platter song, you know, I'll never be able to hear them without having all these Lynchian associations. So, uh, uh, Rammstein's always creepy. Yeah, well, gonna, right? yeah. Is Rammstein not creepy? Is Rammstein the same thing as Roy Orbison of the Platters? Yeah. I, yes, I had I all these innocent associations with Rammstein <laughs> before before Lynch made me think nasty thoughts about them. I don't know what's wrong with you all, but I thought of them as a very innocent industrial goth band. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think he does a great job with that, and obviously this is a tendency he's had since since way back. There are interviews with people from Lost Highway in in talking about the ways that he would uh, direct while listening to pop songs in one earphone. Um, and even his affection for Penderecki goes back that far, apparently. So when Lynch talked to Chris Radley for Lynch on Lynch around 1997, he said, uh, one, of his, one of my favorite guys is Penderecki, who writes some really avant-garde things. The guy's a heavyweight. So I really wanted to get Angelo Badalamenti to push the orchestra into some modern areas and still get a mood. So he was trying to do some things like what he ended up doing with the sound design in this uh, series all the way back with the original series with with Badalamenti. Um, I also wanted to point out some of the parallels to things we've seen before, back to the doubling, tripling, and all that that we've been commenting on uh, and that I seem particularly fixated on today. But... Um, you know, we have these parallels here with the Coop figure on the bottom and the Evans sister on top, whether it's um, Dougie and Janie E or this Richard and uh, um, Linda, I guess, is what we're calling uh, Laura Dern's character right now. And as as JR pointed out, she's trying to like mash uh, Richard's face sort of out of existence with her hands, which like paralleled the hands melding together like a rib cage over Bad Cooper's torso when the woodsman came to extract Bob from him in the sheriff station. And it has an echo of that uh, laying on of hands that Bad Cooper did on poor Jack's face, the, the smudging of his face with the hand, which we've talked about a bunch of times, and we're not sure if that was actually 
actually deadly or if it was just sort of a, a final kiss off to poor Jack who ends up getting killed. Um, and it also suggests with the acting and the creepy music that she's trying to like smear away this residual trauma or this face associated with her residual trauma. And then I like that the note that uh, Richard gets in the morning says, you know, I don't, I don't recognize you anymore. You're someone I don't recognize anymore, because that seems very subconsciously tied to the idea that she's trying to, like, physically rearrange his features into something that, uh, that she recognizes. And I just like thinking about the fact that somewhere in another timeline, there's a, there's a Janie E version of this. Somewhere in another timeline, there's a Lost Highway version of this, where uh, a doppelganger or a person who's become someone else just just like Coop has now become this Richard person, is having sex with someone in a wig who also existed in another timeline, specifically Patricia Arquette. Uh, although in those sex scenes, uh, Patricia Arquette was always on the bottom in Lost Highway instead of on the top. So maybe Kyle's right about the negative universes after all. Yeah, no, I think the Lost Highway point is a good one, but it is it is an inverse situation where in, in Lost Highway, there's anxiety on the part of Bill Pullman's character because of the fact that his wife is, you know, inert and passive as they're trying to have sex. And here we've got uh, Cooper being totally inert and passive on the bottom. Right. And I was, yeah, I think, I think uh, any of these interpretations could be right. They're probably all right at the same time. And I, I, I think the deeper we kind of get into this episode, you know, I, the less likely I was to want to discard anyone's interpretation or reading of the scene, because I think, you know, it becomes more and more kind of radically open, you know, from kind of this, when we jump forward, when they go through this portal in it from, you know, from this point on. Uh, and yeah, I saw it as, as you, I think kind of alluded to Ken, you know, on some level, a reenactment of Diane's kind of traumatic, you know, sexual assault by Mr. C, you know, um, uh, many years before this. Um, but I also kind of saw at first before I had to look really hard to actually see the name of this motel, which was the pear blossom motel, the best I could make out. Um, and I literally had to stand in front of my TV about two inches away from it to read that. But before I was just calling it the metaphysical motel, it seemed like this kind of way station, you know, between worlds again, one of those, these metaphysical spaces we've been talking about. Um, and I thought I also accounted for the kind of, creepiness uh and deeply kind of unsettling nature of this kind of sex scene is kind of being this moment in which cooper and diane's identities are starting to change and fade away and that connection that they might have with you they're, they're starting to change into richard and linda you know kind of in this moment instead of dale cooper and diane evans and i think that kind of wrenching nature of that kind of loss and that you know uh sense of their identities changing is, is another way uh, especially upon my first watch, uh, watch viewing of the scene uh, that I accounted for it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and Richard Cooper clearly is, uh, since arriving at wherever place he now is, he, he is not getting good reactions from cowboys or from cowgirls at all. Uh, the, the thing that, that I got out of this was that, you know, it reminds us of, uh, after the relatively conventional Sam Tracy and Dougie Janie E sex scenes, please emphasize the word relatively there. Um, I, I think we may have forgotten just how awkward and uncomfortable and creepy Lynch's sex scenes have always been. And, and this one, uh, I mean, is very much in line with that. Uh, and, and, 
to me, it, it's what confirms for me that there's there's a real problem with this Cooper because obviously he's aware of the trauma uh, that Diane has gone through with someone who looks like him. We see that from her actions, uh, covering up his face, looking up toward the ceiling, uh, and, and he seems uh, completely oblivious to it. I mean, he's a, he, there's no reaction from him. It's all flat affect from the moment he leaves the office at the motel room, he, he doesn't really interact with her in any meaningful way. He doesn't go to the car and and open the door for her the way, you know, the other we the other way we later see him opening the door for Laura getting in and out of the car. He just goes and stands by the motel room door and he goes inside and um she turns on the lights. He says, turn the lights off. And she says, what are you doing? He says, you come here to me. Uh you know, there's there's no interaction whatsoever between them as human beings and, and he needs to be aware of particularly how that's going to play with her. Uh, and, and the only other thing I would add here is Laura Dern deserves an Emmy for this scene alone because her face really conveys this wide range of emotional reactions uh, in, in a scene where she really doesn't have any dialogue at all. Yeah, for for sure, for sure. And man, the contrast between her and everything Lynch and the other people he's gotten when she's not available, your Patricia Arquette's for just one example is just incredible. Sure. Like, yeah. Before we move on, I would say that one of my uh, favorite reviews I read of episode 18, they described this sex scene as indescribable. <laughs> and I think that's a good description of it. Listen, we're here to give I, it I the old college it- try. That's, that's, a, that's what we do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Richard and Linda, two birds with one stone. I think that's the best way to describe this scene. That's that's how awkward and uncomfortable it is. Yeah. Do, do we really think that she remembers the, the sexual trauma? I know we keep talking about that because we have it from the history of the show. But do we think these people remember their past lives entirely at this point? You think they lose some of the recollection when they wake up as Richard and Linda? Obviously, think, Richard calls himself Dale Cooper again later. But. I, and I think they'd already kind of started to lose some of it once they went through that portal. You know, we're driving, you know, at night. You know, I think it's like they're, you know, they're they're slowly starting to lose it. That's That was how I, that was how I made sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. That very possibly. Um, yeah, maybe she already lost the memory of the sexual assault at that point. And during the sex scene with this Cooper, it's starting to come back to her. Maybe that's why she's trying to smear out his face. And That could and be it, too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's that possibility. I guess I was reading it from, you know, from JR's interpretation of ending the chronologically ending events with the scene in the sheriff's station where she says she remembers all of it. But yeah, that doesn't mean that she remembers all of it at every point. Right. Right. Okay. So Cooper wakes up alone in his hotel room and he looks around and says, Diane. He looks around again. He says, Diane. Uh, and he sees a note on the table. Um, the interior of this hotel room is the same place that we saw in the previous scene. The letter reads, Dear Richard. And Coop is kind of confused. He says, Richard. You know, he clearly does not think is not thinking of himself as Richard, and he's not thinking of Diane uh, as Linda. Uh, so I'm I'm going to resist the temptation to call him Richard at this point on. I'm going to keep calling him Coop. Uh, but the note says, "When you read this, I'll be gone. Please don't try to find me. I don't recognize you anymore. Whatever it was we had together is over, Linda." And Cooper again says, "Richard, Linda. We know now that the Richard Linda that." the fireman was talking about in part one is or presumably these characters that are figured in this note, Richard or Cooper, because I'm still going to try to call him Cooper 
comes out of the hotel room and it is a totally different building. Uh, it looks, it's a two story building. It's, it's not the one story pear blossom motel that he checked into earlier. But like I said, the interior is the same. His car is different. Uh, previously they were driving the same blue fifties or sixties model car, uh, when they parked in the motel parking lot. Uh, now he's driving a black Lincoln, uh, not dissimilar to the one that Mr. C was driving, uh, and not not dissimilar to the uh, famous president that the woodsman from Part Eight would play, uh, a black Lincoln. He looks back at the room. Uh, he leaves the parking lot and he drives away. Uh, this this coupe looks weary and uncertain to me. Yeah, I I agree with you there, Jr. And and as much as I want to think of him as Cooper, we do we do hear him called uh, Richard here. And so, in light of his new name and his subsequent attempt at chivalry in the diner, I couldn't help but be reminded of the end of the Lion in Winter, uh, when Prince Jeffrey mocked his brother for being what he called a chivalric fool. Uh, they were he was reacting to uh, the existence of Prince Richard the Lionhearted uh, that he wouldn't beg for his life. Jeffrey scoffs at him and says, as if the way a man fell down mattered. And that Richard responded very much the way this equally fatalistic and grimly determined Richard might have, saying, when the fall is all there is, it matters. And for what it's worth, uh, although he thought he was going to die that day, Prince Richard didn't die that day as anticipated. And five and a half years later in 11... 89, uh, he became King Richard I of England. So maybe there is a happy ending after all. Okay. Ken, do you want to do your hotel motel holiday in? Yeah, I can, I can do it quickly. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, yeah, a couple of things I thought of here. You know, first of all, how very Lynchian unheimlich is the idea of waking up in a hotel room with the same interior and then walking out to the exterior of a whole different building to a car that's moved all the way across the parking lot and uh, is a different car and and everything else. It's it's very classically Lynch. But yeah, I was thinking about hotels as liminal spaces in this particular series in Twin Peaks: The Return, from the Mayfair in Buckhorn to the motel in another place where. Kettle Jeffries exists uh, to to this particular motel, and uh, I'm sure there are plenty more. And I I got to thinking about cocktails that originated in hotel bars, and particularly cocktails that uh, uh, reverse the typical proportions of a drink. And so I'm going to do a slightly hypocritical thing now and be the mirror image of myself when I talked about why you should avoid things that are made from an awful lot of, for example, quinchona bark. Uh, One thing you can actually drink a fair amount of safely is Angostura bitters, even though Angostura bitters are made from a bark. There is uh, the bark of the Angostura tree. They're made from many other ingredients, too. But for a long time, it was thought that you couldn't consume them in large quantities. They are actually classified by the government as non-potable. They are 45% uh, alcohol, 90 proof, but they are sold in grocery stores, places with no liquor license at all, because the notion is that with a non-potable categorization, they would never be sipped. They would never be consumed in high enough volume uh, to get anybody drunk. Same with like vanilla extract. You can buy vanilla extract at the grocery store. I assume there's a teenager somewhere right now trying to get drunk on vanilla extract. Uh, which I also cannot recommend. But um, so the Angostura bitter has been used now as a base spirit in a handful of cocktails, most notably the Trinidad Sour. Um, I got to thinking about it through the hotel connection because uh, there are seven dashes of bitters, Peychaud's and Angostura, in a Sealbach cocktail. It's a very, very um, bitter cocktail. Uh, 
conflation of a Manhattan and champagne. So you take sort of a Manhattan recipe. You got whiskey, Cointreau for sweetener. You add your seven dashes of bitter. You put champagne on the top. You have a Seelbach cocktail named after the Seelbach Hotel, which we recently learned has a fake origin story. Its origin came about as as if in a dream, in which a bartender pretended to have dug up the recipe from an ancient uh, manuscript in the hotel, an ancient record behind the bar, and uh, and invented a whole thing about the old barman having spilled a Manhattan into the champagne and all of that. Um, and it turned out not to be true. It turned out to be completely untrue, but the cocktail has made it into the annals of sort of modern classics anyway. And from the Seelbach, people got to thinking about using lots and lots of bitters, and we got to something like the Trinidad Sour, which is a cocktail that is based around an entire ounce of Angostura bitters. So you can take the little limited dropper cap off your bottle of Angostura, pour it into the glass, and make a Trinidad Sour, which freaked people out considerably at first. There was fear, for example, that it would make you sterile. Um, but none of these fears seems to have seemed to have come to pass. I've drank uh, several of these cocktails, and I seem to be fine. Um, nothing like uh, Kinchonism has befell, fallen me or anyone else. Um, but they do absolutely reverse the sort of David Denbury ratio about what percentage of strong, weak, bitter, and sweet you should have. And they just put the bitterness up front. I liked all this very much when I started reading uh, up on it to uh, to put this together because there's a piece from a couple years ago in the Washington Post um, by Carrie Allen, M. Carrie Allen, called One Weird Cocktail Has Spread to Menus Worldwide Because It Works. And she talks about the Trinidad Sour and introduces it by a reference to a song by Alejandro Escovedo called Chelsea Hotel 78. And the chorus of Chelsea Hotel 78 consists of Escovedo and backup singers yelling back and forth and it makes no sense and it makes perfect sense and it makes no sense and it makes perfect sense which is exactly how i feel about episode 18 and uh, the finale of twin peaks the return uh, this has been a very bitter and upside down ken's beverage corner Woo. i didn't know how you're gonna do it ken but you did it yeah i was unsure myself you, you did forget one hotel the great northern <laughs> oh you're right how could i forget the great northern which I looked into staying at uh, for the finale because it was too hot in San Francisco and it was uh, expensive and has poor reviews and uh, no kind of cocktails, apparently. Sorry. Sorry, great. Oh, I hate to hear that. I know. Well, you go to the hotel where they shot the interior shots, the Kinawa Lodge or whatever. I think it's the same one. The, the No, no. That, 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 that Great Northern place, the Squalene. Like Snoqualmie Inn, isn't it? Or yeah, something that, that, like that. that but those are just exterior shots. The interior right. shots of the Great Northern are a different hotel. Not in Snoqualmie? Not in Snoqualmie. It's some oh, other part okay. of, yes, I think, fine. Washington. Then you're right. I should have gone to some other part of Washington. It could, it could be cozier, right? And we know they have a bar. Right. right. Only problem is that damn hum if you stay there. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. Right. And don't, don't trust any uh, stereotypically dressed Asian men uh, that you might see at that bar. Jeez, yeah. And and stay away from uh, the karaoke corner if the guy singing's got white hair. The boiler room at all costs. I, I and, would party and all with those, the Swedes. Though. All those damn naval officers with their paddle boards in the lobby. <laughs> you know. That's right. Well, hopefully you can get out. But, but if, if you if you get in right as a Norwegians leave, you could get a, a better rate. The Norwegians, not the Swedes. That's who I want to party with. The Norwegians. The Great Northern would have closed in 1989 if Yelp had existed back then, or you know, so whatever. I think that's probably true. <laughs> uh, oh gosh, you know, guys, I forgot to mention this. Uh, I felt obligated to note that uh, as Coop and Diane made that transition through an interdimensional portal, 
uh, by those wire, uh, the, the electrical wires. I wanted to note, as long as we're talking at the Great Nor- about the Great Northern, is fundamentally the only way that this trip was able to happen is because Coop obtained the key to room 315 at the Great Northern, uh, a, a key that was provided by Jade when she put it in the, in the, in the mail. So I think we can say now uh, that Jade gave three rides. <laughs> All the twos are becoming threes. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay, so so he's in Odessa. He he's driving. Coop is driving through Odessa, population ninety nine thousand nine hundred and forty. Um, this apparently, Kyle, this is the population of Odessa in two thousand ten. Exactly, is that correct? That is that is correct. That is uh, what I got from the website population us. It hovered pretty close to ninety thousand in the eighty, ninety, and two thousand censuses. It had inched up to ninety two five and change in two thousand five. Uh, and according to that website, in 2010, it was 99,940. So uh, you can put that under the heading of what year is this? I would say, though, that not always do, especially kind of smaller towns or smaller cities, update that like on time. You know, like you think when you says 114,000 by 2014, I would say this means we are at some point after 2010. But I don't think those signs always get updated. I think it depends on the budget that year for things like that. So because right. I've, I've lived in places where they'd done the census and the sign was still up for like another six months or a year or something like that. So, yeah. Oh, hell, that Twin Peaks sign still says 51,000 and whatever. It's been that for 20 years. Yeah, Exactly. Well, that's a nice sign. It's made of nice wood. Um, and I just assume all the civic budget in Odessa goes to funding giant high school football video boards, right? I assume it all goes to the Odessa Permian Panthers and keeping Coach Taylor's swoopy hair happy and all of that. Does that take place in Odessa? Oh, yeah. Well, it's based uh-huh. on the real life story that the book was based on was uh, the Odessa Permian Panthers. Uh, okay. uh, and so they become the, yeah, the Dylan Panthers in the, in the show. And probably the movie. I don't remember what they're called in the movie, but it might be Odessa in the movie. So, uh, Jerry, I have a couple things on the drive before we get into the Judy Diner. So just let me know when you want those. Yeah, no, and actually, I'm going to let you go there. But before, uh, so two things that jump out at me in that drive before he gets to the diner are he noticeably passes a large 18 wheeler truck, a big truck. Oh yeah, right. and uh, in 17, at the exact same moment that. Uh, Cooper approaches and passes this large 18-wheeler truck in 18. In 17, Coop has already been attacked by Bob, and Coop says to Freddy, are you Freddy? And he says, I'm I'm Freddy, and this here's me destiny. And as he says, this here's my destiny, we see the Mack truck pass in 18. Freddy's destiny is to hit like a Mack truck. Um <laughs> And it's so, a world of truckers. Yeah, it's a world of it's truckers. A world of truckers. That. It's a, it is a world of truck drivers. And, and so the, the next scene that we see in, on the way to the diner is this prominent shot of uh, huge Maersk shipping containers stacked up in, in Odessa. And, and Ken, you found something really bizarre 
Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it that. is. Yeah, I, I'm obsessed with everything Danish um, because uh, I don't know. I contain multitudes, I guess. But uh, so Maersk is like the most successful shipping company in the world, and it brings billions of dollars into to Denmark uh, every year. And so I, I wondered if there was any particular reason why their shipping containers were in this shot, other than coincidence. And having been encouraged by what we found on the scarab in the slot machine, I thought I'd dig a little bit and just look into the logo to see if it might. Have have some resonance with things we've seen. And sure enough, the logo in Maersk has a cool story behind it. The The story is that P.M. Moeller, who was involved with the family that founded Maersk, was a deeply religious Christian. And this is straight out of Wikipedia, by the way. Um, he attached a blue banner with a white seven-pointed star on both sides of the black chimney on the steamship Laura the steamship Laura, when his wife recovered from illness. And in a letter to his wife, he explained in October of 1886, the little star on the chimney is a memory of the night when I prayed for you and asked for a sign. If a star would appear in the gray and cloudy sky, it would mean that the Lord answers prayers. The same star later became the emblem of the Maersk group. So, to me, having this star show up on all these uh, shipping containers in between the scenes scored by my prayer and, you know, Coop's next encounter with whatever iteration of Laura this is can't be a coincidence. Maybe it is, but I, I don't think it is. Sometimes the show creeps well, me I, out. I, I, yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I really like that connection, Ken. However, I'm going to call bullshit on that story being true. Oh, yeah. I think it's all all propaganda invented by a pettiless multinational corporation uh, engaged in you know the most active forms of exploitation known known to man. Oh yeah, no, they're they're real evil. One one other little thing: this drive because I'm I tracked all these drives. There's so many of them, and I wanted to I wanted to get them down. Uh, one minute twenty seven seconds. This drive into Odessa. One plus two plus seven is ten. One minute twenty seven seconds. Then I I'm bet right. if we total up all the silent staring in the first couple episodes with all the silent driving in this, it'll be exactly the same <laughs> period yeah. amount of time. There'd be some neurological significance, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I should point out some of this is bullshit. Like, I was just watching the counter on my Showtime app, and where something could have been pegged as starting or ending on one side or the other of a second, I picked the one that made for the better thing, right? So I was I was skewing the results towards adding up to sevens and tens because I wasn't using a stopwatch in hundreds of a second. But, you know, I mean, to some extent, all numerology is bullshit, but here we are. <laughs> Thanks for undermining your methodology, Ken. <laughs> really helpful. Well, well... Uh, okay, so Cooper pulls up to the diner. It is Eat at Judy's Coffee Shop. And he pulls up. We see uh, the kind of electric uh, horse, kitty horse that kids can ride on. It's a white one outside of the coffee house. And as Cooper pulls in and parks, he walks in. Uh, and inside, we're in a classic sort of Texas diner. It's uh, it it does seem kind of reminiscent of No Country for Old Men. The place is basically empty. Half the tables have chairs on them. You know, these these sorts of places aren't open for dinner. They they close in the afternoon, and it seems like we're in that kind of liminal space in the afternoon where they're about to close, which is why the chairs are stacked up on the on the table. And by, by the way, Jr., you saying that about the the not open for dinner. The, the sign contains what may be a typo because it advertises breakfast, lunch, diner, D-I-N-E-R, not D-I-N-N-E-R. Yeah. No, I don't think that's a typo. I think it's intentional. It's a, it's a breakfast, lunch, diner. 
Yeah, it totally yeah, is. Because, it's not a dinner diner. Yeah, there's a sign over the main door that says open 5.30 a.m. to something p.m. And it's been, like, papered over so that it now reads open 5.30 a.m. to, uh, looks like 1.30 p.m. <laughs> like, so it's just at the end of lunch when they close, like like a coffee shop, like Jared said. Yeah, and, and Kyle, you had made a comment um, in the show notes about this elderly couple eating breakfast, have a kind of Deer Meadow restaurant patrons from Firewalk with me. I got the exact same uh, notion. Are you talking about that little girl who got murdered? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I got the same impression. And is she the little girl who lives down the lane? <laughs> Could be. Sorry, I can't. I, I can't help it. My brain can't help but put these things together like they make sense somehow. Coop sits at a booth. A waitress approaches. Her name is Christy and is apparently Clint Eastwood's daughter. Uh, he he doesn't seem to really respond to her. Uh, he kind of just puts his hand up uh, while uh, she pours. She does pour coffee. He doesn't refuse coffee, so that's a, a relatively good sign. Um, he asked Christy, is, "Is there another waitress that works here?" And she says, "Yeah, it's her day off. Actually, it's her third day off." And you know, at this point, oh, Kyle, yeah, Kyle, you had a point here about the the differential between original recipe coop and this coop in terms of yeah, his and, interaction with restaurant personnel. Yeah. And obviously part 18 is an episode chock full of stark departures from the original series. And, and I think that's nowhere more evident than here because his exchange with the waitress is a disturbingly thorough negation of his conversation with the waitress in the dining room of the great Northern early in season one. There's no wait a minute. There's no first sip. There's no compliment on the damn fine cup of coffee. There's no highly detailed breakfast order. He's utterly impersonal and it is entirely unnerving. And interestingly enough, we see a little bit of the old coop emerge after he takes a sip of coffee. And, and was it just me? I know we saw her pour it, but when he actually picks up the cup and puts it to his lips and takes a sip, it looks like an empty cup. I don't see any coffee in that cup, which is just weird to me. Yeah, that she seems pours it, it yeah. but not very full, I guess, like half full or something. Maybe yeah. so. Maybe that's it. But it, it honestly looked like an empty cup when he picked it up. Yeah, there's like just a, a metaphysical long, coffee. Yeah, just a long tradition of empty coffee cups in TV shows. Like Gilmore Girls used to be a serial offender on this. People just toting around empty paper that you could tell from the way they were holding them were empty. And I think somebody even did a website briefly or a Tumblr where they just tracked empty coffee cups being used as prop coffee. So maybe maybe the Lynch people that were doing this particular episode fell victim to that tendency. Maybe it was the same deficient prop person that got the wrong color of vermouth back on the back on the set. And some of the roadhouse scenes, yeah, it looked like they were drinking empty cans of beer. So, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I totally buy that. And I know, obviously, they can't drink real alcohol while while they're filming these things. And so I get that. And I'll buy that David Lynch would not care about the particular bottle of vermouth. But David Lynch gives a damn about coffee. I, I don't I don't <laughs> believe he would fake coffee. Rogue prop person. That's what I'm sticking with. I'm just going to assume it was half full. That it just was there was and, coffee in there. Just that, and not there's the cup. difference between his JR. I'm viewing it as <laughs> half empty. <laughs> so uh, the waitress walks away to another table where there are three cowboys. She asks them if they want coffee, and one of the cowboys starts grabbing on Christy after she tells him multiple times to stop. Coop says in a very authoritative tone, "Leave her alone," and then you know these men's right advocate cowboys get up and uh, come come up to Coop and say, you know, what the fuck are you doing? And Coop says, what? 
and the cowboy points a gun and says at him, get the fuck out of that booth. Now, at the exact point in time that Coop unleashes uh, on these Gamergate assholes, he uh, we see in part 17 uh, him put the ring – the, the Owl Cave ring on Mr. C. Uh, so it, we get this sort of Coen Brothers, Quentin Tarantino scene where Coop, you know, he completely disables and um, disorients and uh, shoots this guy in the foot. He kicks this guy in, in the crotch, I think. You know, he and then finally uh, he gets the gun from the last standing cowboy uh, who first denies having a gun, but finally he gets him to put on the gun. The the cowboys are on the ground, writhing and moaning. Coop takes the two guns towards the kitchen, and he goes behind the counter. And, you know, clearly this is not standard FBI procedure to discharge your firearm so uh, loosely, nor is it seem to be FBI procedure to destroy evidence by taking guns and putting them in a fryer. Uh, but Coop has got more important business. He says to Christy, write the address on the piece of paper. And she says, what? And, you know, he's, and he says, write the address of the other waitress on a piece of paper. And again, uh, we're, we've got, you know, totally affectless Coop. Uh, he's just, he's almost like a robot with commands that he's supposed to fulfill. And what he knows he needs to do is, is find the address of the other waitress. Uh, how he knows that the other waitress at Judy's diner is going to be Laura is, is never explained. I, I think that all of this at some point was programmed into him before he was entered there. And as his personality seems to be fading away, uh, you know, this is what remains. Uh, but again, we just don't really know. This is the point for people who are are, are watching. I think you, you, Ken, last time asked me, or maybe you were very concerned about this, Kyle, as to when the superimposed grayscale head of Coop appears in 17, the corresponding point in 18. This is that point where he asks for the final set of coordinates uh, for to find, you know, who, who he thinks is going to be Laura Palmer. And, you know, I, I, I noted then that as, as – Coop says in 17, there are things that are going to change. Uh, in 18, he's dropping these guns uh, who are go- now going to go through an alchemical process of transformation in the golden frying oil, uh, <laughs> which is probably corn oil, uh, uh, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and and, he, and while, while Coop is having this conversation with the waitress, he's holding his gun up. He's pointing his gun at a civilian. Right. You know, right. which is that you're you're really you're not supposed to do that at all, whether or not you're an FBI agent. Uh, but he's he's just kind of oblivious. You know, he tells he tells the the cook that he doesn't know if this oil is hot enough to blow up those bullets. So I would move if I were you. But uh, you know, he stands right in front of the fryer anyway. Right. Uh, it's it's really really disorienting. Um, so Kyle, do you you want to say anything before we we close out this scene? No, I mean, I'm with you on all of that. It's very uncoop like behavior. I mean, he's his approach borders on the rude when he's dealing with the waitress. Like you say, that he's swinging around with the the gun in his hand, uh, unconcerned with who it's pointed at. And then the other thing that's interesting is you quoted him correctly there, Jr. He says, 
I'd move away. Like, if I were standing next right. to this friar, I'd move away. But he is standing next to the friar, and he doesn't move away, which which almost sends the signal that, yeah, this is what Dale Cooper would do, but I'm going to stand right here and not do that because I'm not really Dale Cooper at this point. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And now, finally, Coop leaves. One, one of these uh, dirtbag proud boy cowboys gets up, and he says – uh, what the fuck just happened? Which, you know, we're all kind of thinking in at this point in time in ep- part 17, Nido's head turns into smoke, uh, which is perfectly understandable, uh, unlike all of this stuff. Um, I, I think that we've got a good role here, but in the interest of not, because I think we kind of want to handle all of the Carrie stuff in one episode. And I don't think we can get through all of Carrie's stuff in this episode. I think this is a good stopping point. Um, but I will open the floor if anybody has anything they want to say on what we've seen so far uh, of part 18 that we've discussed. No, I think this is a good stopping place, too. I, I was, you know, just kind of agree with you guys. It, it, it seems like we're getting, uh, especially I noticed it, you know, in the this diner scene. It's like we get mr c mixed with dale cooper at times almost mixed with dougie you know it's like we get this kind of blending like overlay of like all these kind of different identities and yeah i i I found it really really interesting mostly mr c i felt like but yeah but you get these little glimmers here and there uh and yeah there's it's like they're all kind of mixed together in this uh reality yeah right and and i the color the, the way that it shot in terms of these sort of like faded yellow colors and and almost all of these scenes from when he steps out of the motel uh, just gives me this sense of, of decay Uh, almost like things are just unraveling Uh, not just for Coop personally, but like in this whole universe or perhaps pocket universe. And I'll have more to say about this probably, you know, next episode. Uh, But it it just uh, one thing, it seemed to me like these, you're right, like there's that sense of decay, but it also seemed very much more kind of realistic and I kind of gr- grimy, I feel like, than a lot of the other yes. scenes that we've seen yes, very in so. Vegas or Twin Peaks or Buckhorn. It seemed very, very realistic uh, for Lynch. Uh, and then I've got this kind of theory about if this is a pocket universe, it definitely seems like contemporary, you know, U.S. shot on location with not with very minimal kind of set dressing. Uh, and I've got, I guess, a theory about what that means. But I think I'll hold that for after we get uh, Carrie uh, to Twin Peaks and in, in the next episode. But, yeah, you're, I, I did notice that. Yeah, too. no, totally. It, it's like it's like Mean Streets, but shot in Odessa. And I love that movie. Uh, so, yeah, so this is great. Any Anything else anybody want to say? Well, I just want to throw out one thing that I'm kind of toying with on the 17 versus 18 thing, JR, because you're um, uh, talking about all the parallels and all the ways that they're synced up, which I think is interesting. Do you think it's fair to read 17 and 18 as like two bites of the same apple by Lynch? Like he didn't ever really want to wrap up this story. And he said in interviews about the original series that he would like to have his ending be no ending at all. So he thought maybe rather than than try to tie together a bunch of threads, he would, I guess, A, put a bunch of stuff into the episodes that was clearly never going to be resolved. You know, your characters talking in the roadhouse and your mutant puke girl and, and what have you. 
And then B, when it came time to actually uh, tie a bow on things, he would try it a bunch of different ways and just uh, and just use what what he thought worked. And what he thought worked was basically two finales. There was the 17 one with the Dragon Ball Z video game ending where everybody ends up in the sheriff's station and you get a final scene between um, uh, Laura Dern and Kyle MacLaughlin. And then there's the 18 finale where he goes real dark and real um, experimental. And it's all about his two favorite actors of all time doing his favorite thing, driving in a car. Um, like, uh, is, do you think that's a valid reading? Yeah, no, I yeah. think that uh, yeah. absolutely. He's, he's folded them together like a Mobius strip. Yeah, and, and Ken, I think it goes back to your earlier point about Lost Highway, that there's any number of interpretations that almost work, but there's no way to get that last puzzle piece into place. And and we even saw some of that in our discussion of Part 17, where you know each of us would throw out a theory that seemed to hang together pretty well, and then one of the other of us would ask a question and say, well, what about this? And we wouldn't have an answer. We I, I, I can't speculate. I don't know. It There's nothing that adds up 100 hundred percent but there's a variety of explanations that come you know 90 percent of the way to making it add up that that you can't you can't prove any of them you can't discount any of them and it goes back to something that uh that lynch said uh, himself a long time ago uh he said it's so beautiful just to leave it abstract once it becomes specific it's no longer true to a lot of people where if it's abstract there could be some truth to it for everybody uh, i don't know that anybody was completely happy with part 18 as they were sitting there watching it in the moment but as we've all thought about it we've all come to very different conclusions about what it means and how it ties together but we've all gotten to a part where we a point where we see some truth in it and can even see some truth in the other guy's truth um, but if we were to get a definitive, absolute, this is the right answer, uh, I think all of us who didn't subscribe to that particular theory would be a little bit let down. And maybe even those of us who were proven nominally right would go, yeah, you know, I kind of liked it better not knowing. Yeah. And I mean, Lynch has said some similar things since he started to give little bits of interviews. I mean, you know, we always talk about how he doesn't give anybody anything, but he just had this festival, right, where uh, he was speaking on behalf of the festival and trying to promote things. And so people tried to pin him down. And that was where he said something about how, well, I could do another season of Twin Peaks, but remember that this one took me many years to make, right? So he said some similar stuff in, in 2017 about, well, it's just better if you leave it open-ended. It's more fun for people to to put their own meaning on it yeah. as though, you know, what what we're doing now is, uh, as we've said earlier in the season, a, a feature, not a frog bug, right? Um, right. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I like that he's he's sticking to that steadfastly. I feel thrown, I think, partly by the nature of this endeavor where we were trying to keep track of clues because it seemed like we were better equipped to do it with all the time we were throwing into the podcast every week. Um, and so got down paths that involved, you know, murder mystery pleasures, as I called them last week. But, uh, but also by Kyle McLaughlin saying midway through, well, don't worry, everybody, it's all going to make sense, which I dismissed as fundamentally ridiculous when he said it and then kept in the back of my head as though it might actually be true yeah, um, or like sure. literally linearly true, right? I mean, all I needed to do was go, well, sure, it'll make sense in the way that like Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive make sense. It isn't going to make sense in a linear putting the pieces together kind of way. Um, and then, you know, the ending it gets broadcast and McLaughlin tweets something like, oh yeah, no, I don't understand it either. <laughs> right? He hadn't even <laughs> seen it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. He Super bizarre. Right. right. Like, I don't, why did you say it? Just don't say it, Kyle. I'll, I'll ask him when we, yeah. uh, when we persuade and I, I think for our wrap up. Yeah. In that same festival interview this week that you were talking about, Ken, I think someone asked specifically Lynch, like, so what happened to Audrey? And he's like, 
well, what do you think happened to Audrey? You know, so right, uh, right, right. Throwing it and back. Your on. answer, Jeff, was she gets to chill with my dude Charlie, so she's doing okay. Yeah, see, Charlie took right. her out of there, right? <laughs> I I became a very big fan of the character Charlie by the end of uh, the season. So I'm probably in a very distinct minority there, but uh, I thought the guy was. He had a lot of patience, good sense of style, you know? Um, it's great. I'm going to buy you a t-shirt with a giant Charlie face on I it. I would wear that with, like, incredible pride and happiness, yes. <laughs> but would you wear it under a coat? Would you have a coat on over oh, it? Yeah. Or would you, yeah, just off you comes go, the off coat. Off comes the coat! <laughs> See, Jeff, I think your unconscious has identified that Charlie, your beloved character, is the same personage as the jumping man. Because because of your your devotion to the two two characters, I think you just mm. broke my brain. I did want to point out that in last week's yeah. episode, I think the jumping man took over like Kyle's audio after I had left the broadcast for about about <laughs> ten right. seconds because right. the same no. noise that get Kyle's audio made is the same noise the jumping man made as he came down the stairs and the the black cloud. No, let me tell you, I'm glad you brought that up, Jeff, because I, I want you to know what happened. That was confirmation because i just explained how i thought that nido wasn't really diane it was actually judy and sure enough at that point weird black lodge magic things start messing with my audio track i think that is judy striking out at me because she knows i'm right but i will not be silenced jowde yeah we're not going to talk about judy yeah this ties into my theory that i kind of referred to that yeah what lynch is saying in his realistic depiction of contemporary america in Odessa and in this, this later episode is that uh, America uh, is <laughs> a world controlled by Judy, <laughs> an extreme negative force <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who could affect your audio at any time. God, that's knows. probably true. And on that happy note. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're going to, uh, sorry, we're, we're, we're going to put this together uh, again. Rest in peace. Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. Yeah, we we will miss you, uh, but you had a really great run. Uh, and with that, I'm going to say goodnight he's, he's, and goodbye. Go I would ahead. just like to say I think Carl Rudd's – no one's going to wake him up at the Fat Trout Trailer Park tomorrow. He's going to get to sleep as late as he wants. God bless him. That's right. That's right. Good night, America. Uh, All right. All right. All right. Bye-bye.
time, what can I say? I don't feel the need to give such secrets away They think maybe I need help, though I know I'm right Alright, I'm just better off never listening to friends advice But if you insist on knowing my bliss I tell you this If you want to know what the reason is I only smile when I lie And I tell you why Because your kiss is on my list Your kiss is on my list Your kiss is on my list Of the best things in life Kisses on my list. Your kisses on my list. Your kisses on my list. Of the best things.